We are finishing up chapter one of First Timothy today. Um, as we've been going through First Timothy, Paul has asked this young pastor Timothy to stay in Ephesus for a couple different reasons. He wants to build up the saints, but at the same time, what he's trying to do is he's trying to root out false teaching that was in Ephesus. False teachers and false teaching were plaguing the church. After the first week in First Timothy, Jason came up to me and he said, man, Stephen, it's really interesting when you read the book of Revelations, Ephesus is one of the churches that's mentioned. In fact, if you go to Revelation chapter 2, there's a lot of words on that screen there. Uh, th- this is what it says in Revelation chapter 2. The same church that Timothy was going to to pastor, this is the apostle John writing them years later. This is what John writes to Write to the angel in the church of Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name. And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Do y'all see there? Whenever John wrote to the church in Ephesus, he was basically saying, you did it. There was false teaching. There were false doctrines that were flourishing in the church in Ephesus And Paul sent Timothy to root it out. And decades later, when John is looking at the church in Ephesus, he said, you did it. You rooted out the false teachers. You rooted out the false doctrine. Those who were called apostles, and they were not, you found them to be liars. But, he said, I have this against you. You were able to root out the false teachers. You were able to root out the false doctrine so that there was pure doctrine. But in the midst of your good deeds and in the midst of your good theology, you've lost your joy. You've lost your your first love. When I was writing this, I kept thinking about like like a, a, a new couple. Those of you who are married, you might remember like dating. Do y'all remember that? I've been married 18 years this June, and I can still think back to those dating years. And everything's like new, and you're getting to know each other, and it's all exciting. You get those little flutters in your stomach, and then, and then you decide to get married. And so you, you have this ceremony, and you both agree to this covenant with one another. Do y'all recall that? And it's such a beautiful time. But then sometimes as the years go by, you might forget that love. And you might just find yourself going through the motions of marriage, of getting up, setting the coffee, going to work. Who's got the kids this time? Where are you going? What are you doing? And it's almost like you lost that first love. And what John is saying in the book of Revelations, he's saying, don't forget your first love. Don't forget the joy of the salvation that you had at first. Let let it live on in you. Don't forget the gospel. 
In our passage today in 1 Timothy chapter 1, what we see are both things of what John's talking about in Revelations. In the first part of chapter 1, he's saying we need to root out these false doctrines. But then in the second part of chapter 1, what he does is he focuses in on the gospel. What is the gospel and what the gospel should produce in us? So that's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, and we want to answer the questions, what is the gospel? And then secondly, what should the gospel do in us? What should it produce in us? First of all, what is the gospel? I think the gospel, when we look at the gospel, uh, the word gospel literally means good news. In the ancient Greeks, what the gospel, this word evangelion was, what it was, it was, a, it was a more of a military term. Because whenever you had a battle between two armies, you didn't have embedded reporters with Wi-Fi, right? So if you wanted to get the word out, if we won or lost, you would have to send a runner back home. You'd have to send a message back home. And when they got to the city gates, what they would do is they would announce the gospel. They would announce the good news, that they won or they announced the bad news that they lost and it's like time to fortify the walls. Uh, they're coming after us, right? So that's, that's what the gospel was. It's an announcement of good news. And so whenever we think about Jesus's ministry, Jesus's ministry, we are told in the beginning of Mark that from day one, he began to announce the gospel. Like his birth, his ministry starting was the announcement that victory was here. That's what the gospel is. It's an announcement of victory. And when we look at the gospel, the gospel is amazing because at the same time, the gospel of Jesus Christ is both simple and it's complex. The gospel of Jesus Christ is both simple and complex. Think of it, think, think of it this way. Think of it of a red rose. Is there anything more beautiful than a single red rose sitting in the middle of a table in a slender vase. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's simple. But at the same time, what we find is that simple red rose, when you look closer, is much more complex. Simply, it's some red petals, or at least could be red, uh, but there are petals, there's a stem, there's leaves. It's a simple flower. But if you begin to look closer, what you find is that rose is much more complex. When you look at the stem, you find that stem is serving the flower as a skeletal structure, holding up the leaves, holding up the bloom. If you cut that stem open, you find that the stem is what delivers water and minerals to the rest of the plant. When you look at the leaves, they're simple, they're beautiful. But when you look into the leaves, what you find is that there are veins going through it. And inside that leaf, there is chlorophyll. Is anyone like getting their elementary science classes going through them right now? There's chlorophyll. And the chlorophyll sucks up the energy from the sun and gives energy and life to the plant. And at the same time, producing oxygen that the rest of us breathe. When you look at the bloom, you might think these are simple petals. But inside the bloom... If you look more closely, what you have is an entire reproductive system of that flower. Is a simple red rose simple? Yes. But is it complex? Yes. And when we look at the gospel, we find that the gospel is both simple and complex. 
It's simple enough that you can encapsulate the gospel in a single sentence. And the gospel writers do this from time to time. Whenever I read the Bible and every now and again I'll come across a verse and I'm like, oh, that's a great verse. You ever had that feeling? And here's a few verses that encapsulate the gospel. Here's one in 1 Corinthians 5, 21. He, God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That verse encapsulates the gospel. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God to sal- for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. John 3.16, this familiar verse. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The gospel in one verse 1 Peter uh, 2.24, for he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus himself said, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is a simple thing. It's the love of God sending Jesus to die for our sins so that we might be made right with him. But it's also very complex because when you look at the whole Bible and you read the Old Testament, you might think there's nothing to do with the gospel here, but the gospel is written on every page of that book beginning in Genesis and being woven through the entire Old Testament. The gospel is so complex that we can stand up behind this pulpit every week and talk about the implications of the gospel. In fact, it's not just this pulpit, but every pulpit for the last two millennia can do that. Is the gospel simple? Yes. It is salvation for sinners. Is it complex? You bet it is. But what we need to do as believers is not feel like we can grow past the gospel. We never grow past the gospel. It is the foundation of everything we believe and everything that we put our hope in. We have to hold tight to it. As John said in the book of Revelation, we need to remember it and not let go of it. My question for you is, what have you done with this gospel? Have you believed in it? Oftentimes when I'm talking with people about the gospel, the way I explain it is this. These these few points, I say, you know what, God, what Christians believe is that Christians believe that God created a good world. And he created a world without brokenness. He created the world perfect. And in this world, he planted and grew up and formed human beings as the crown of his creation to take care of the world, to be kings and queens on the world, to be good stewards of this world. But what our first parents did is that they rebelled against God and what they did is they brought sin and brokenness into the world. Have you tasted and have you seen that sin and brokenness in the world? Have you seen corrupt 
governments? Have you been lied to? Have you been betrayed? Have you been mistreated? Have you been abused? Have you seen that happen to other people? Have you been, have you been broken down by addiction? All that is a part of that fall. All that is a part of that sin that has invaded our world. And the gospel really begins to take root and take effect in our lives when we realize that that brokenness and sin isn't something that's just outside of us, but it's something that we contribute to. We contribute to the brokenness. We contribute to to the wickedness. We contribute to the sinfulness. But the good news is that though we do that and though we deserve judgment from God because of that, God loved us and he sent his son to die for us. And what Jesus did when he died on the cross, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, and what happened there was the great substitution that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. God's punishment for humanity was poured out on Jesus. Jesus, he took what we deserved. And that when we believe in this risen Jesus, Jesus' righteousness that he lived in his life is then applied to us. That's the gospel. Like, has that gospel taken root in your life? It might be that that is your first time hearing that. It might be that you're hearing that with new ears today. And it very well might be that the Spirit is calling you saying, believe in this message. There's hope in this message. Or it might be that you have put in your faith in this message and your hope is in this message, but you've forgotten. And the Spirit's call to you is to come back and to remember your first Love. Now, when we believe the gospel, it just doesn't stop there. It's not just this mental ascent that we make. But what we believe is that the gospel has effects and works within us. And so when we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, we have to ask a question. What should the gospel produce in us? What should the gospel produce in us? And in verse 12... What we see is what the gospel produces in us is a calling to his kingdom. Listen to what he says. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he has considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. We see that Timothy had a similar calling in verse 18. He says, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you. So that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. In both of these references, in verse 12 and verse 18, Paul is talking about part of the effect of the gospel in some people is that they have a call to what we call vocational ministry. That he calls some people within the church to be elders and to be pastors. When I was writing this, I was thinking back to the time where I felt called to gospel ministry. And for me, it happened when I was about 15 years old. My church went to Brownwood, Texas to go to a a, a youth summer camp. And I remember having a a night of testimony where our youth pastor was leading the youth to kind of talk about what was going on in their life at that time. And I I was young and I was naive. I was naive in this. I thought everybody's life was like my life. 
I think, that's, I think that's a mistake of youthfulness, that we think everybody's life is like our life. And if I looked at my life back then, I was living the good life. I had a mom and dad who were married and who were in love with one another. They loved Jesus and they instilled a love for Jesus in their kids. They had jobs. We had a stable home. There was no want. The only thing I was afraid of was like a spanking that I might get, right? And that was a real, that was a real fear, guys. But that was my life. And so I just assumed that everybody's life was like my life. And at this testimony meeting, when I started hearing the lives of my classmates, and these were not like strangers for me. I mean, we went through like K through 12 together, small town Texas. I began to hear what their life was like. And it knocked me back because I'm like, there's a, there's a difference here. Our lives aren't the same. And I must have had this confused look on my face because our youth pastor came back to me and he said, Stephen, how are you processing all this? And I said, really, I, I don't know. Like, I, I didn't know about any of this. Like, I, I'm realizing that my life is, is really good. And he did this horribly mean thing to me. He gave me a verse and walked off. He gave me Luke 12, 48. And he said, think about this verse for a while. So I got my Bible and I flipped open to Luke chapter 12, verse 48. And it said this, to those who have been given much, much will be required. To those who have been given much, much will be required. And I sat there looking at that verse, hearing the stories of my friends and classmates, looking at what God has blessed me with my home. And at that moment, I said, I think I need to dedicate my life to the church. And from that moment on, I started working towards that. God's calling to vocational ministry, God's calling to pastoral ministry is not like a message on the bottle. It's not a handwriting on the wall. But where it starts is it starts with a desire within the heart of saying, this is something that I want to do. And from there, it's affirmed by the church. That after I had this desire and I finally got to a point where I could tell my family and tell my church, they said, well, we can kind of see this, but let's see if you have the gifts. And so, believe it or not, I was part of a church that would let a teenager preach. And, and they, they said, all right, here's a text. <clears throat> they didn't even give me a text. They just said, go preach a sermon. And I'm like, all right, I don't know what I'm doing here. Guys, it was rough. And some of you might be saying, they're, Stephen, they're still rough. I don't know. But, but it was rough. But at the end of that, they said, yes, we see this calling in your life. And they then sent me off to get more training because it was rough, right? But, but that's what the calling was about. It was about, about a desire to serve. And then that desire being affirmed by the local church. And that local church then deploying you to ministry. Guys, we need more men with this calling on their lives. We need more men with this calling in their lives because what we are seeing in our nation is, is, is not enough people stepping up saying, I want to serve in the church and I want to dedicate my life towards that. And just this week, I'm looking at other churches in Bell County. One of them this week just closed their doors. That there was a gospel witness in our community that existed last week, but this week the doors are closed. 
Other churches of small churches out in the country who, who don't know what's next because their pastor who's been there for 40 years is about to retire. Do you want to know what my heart is and what my desire is? My desire is that we would be a church that, that plants seeds in hearts of people who want to serve in the church and who dedicate their lives towards that. I would love to be a church that says, man, you need to preach. We'll give you some reps. We'll let you get that experience. We'll see if the call is on your life. And then I would love to be the church that sends people out to other churches to fill those pulpits. I would love to be the church that says, yeah, we've been training other worship leaders up so that they then can go out to those other churches as well. Why? Because we believe that the church is God's answer to his mission. God said, I want the world to know about me, the world to know about my glory and my gospel. And he says, to accomplish this, I'm giving you the church. We have to be about the church and raising people up and deploying them. But the calling we see in scripture is not just for vocational ministry. It's not just for serving in the church, but the gospel call falls on every Christian. It might be that your desire is not for the church. It might be that your desire is for the classroom. Or it might be that your desire is for construction. Or your desire is to, is to stay at home and raise your kids. Or your desire is to, is to be in the army. Because we believe that those desires are God-given desires. And we believe that God wants to take that calling in your life and use it for the gospel. You are all ministers of reconciliation, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're all ministers of reconciliation. So the question is, is how are we using our vocation for the kingdom of God? The beautiful thing is in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me. It might be that you're saying, I'm a Christian and I'm in the classroom, but I don't feel the strength to be a witness for God here. Or you might say, I'm a Christian and I'm in the military and I don't have the strength I need to be a witness here. It might be that you're a stay-at-home mom and it's like, man, all my strength has been taken by every little person in this house. I've got nothing left. The good news is, is that when Christ saves us, he then strengthens us to accomplish the mission that he has given us. What we have to do is use whatever we have for the kingdom of God. It might be that all the strength you have is to do something small for the kingdom, but guys, dedicate it to the Lord. And I'd encourage all of us to pray these two prayers. One, that you would ask God to use you in your vocation. And two, that you would ask God to show you the opportunity. And I fully believe that if we are praying these two prayers of God, use me, of God, show me the opportunity, that he will strengthen us to go about that work. And what we will see is the gospel going out and the lost being saved and those walking in darkness seeing the light. That is our calling. 
That was a sub point. Went a little bit long on that one, sorry. All right, so what else does the gospel produce in us? The gospel doesn't just give us our calling, but it should produce within us. And I'm gonna see if I can combine these two sub points into one point. It should produce within us both a humility and a gratitude. It should produce humility and a gratitude. Notice what he says in verse uh, 12 here. And let's, let's jump to, uh, yeah, let's jump to verse 13. He just said, Christ has strengthened me to do this ministry. In verse 13, he says this, even though I was a formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed and with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. I want you to notice the humility of Paul. Paul, an apostle. Paul, the man who took the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul, who Christianized an entire Roman world. How did he view himself? He viewed himself as the worst of sinners. Why did he view himself that way? He viewed himself that way because he knows what he was saved from. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an arrogant and a a violent man against Christ. But yet Christ showed me mercy. If we, if we experience the gospel, we have to know what we were saved out of. We have to know what we were saved from and what that should produce within us is a humility. There should not be any sense of arrogance within the heart and life of believers. There should not be any pride or boasting within the heart of a believer. Why? Because arrogance comes from our work. Arrogance comes from what we have done, from what, what, what we have accomplished. And when it comes to our salvation, what the Word of God teaches is that we contributed nothing but that the only reason we have salvation is because of the work of Christ. What many of us need to do is we need to remember what God has saved us from. In fact, sometime this week, maybe it's today over lunch, maybe it's in a community group, man, I want you to talk with somebody else and say, if Christ didn't save me, where would I have ended up? Where would you be? If Christ didn't step in and said, I want you for my kingdom. For many of us, when we think about that, we're thinking, oh my gosh, thank you, Jesus, for stepping in and saving me. It might be that you grew up in the church. That that the gospel was almost like mother's milk for you because it's all you've ever known. And to that, I want to say, praise God. That's my desire for my kids. That's the testimony I want for my kids of Jesus is all I've ever known. And you might say, I, I can't really conceptualize life without Christ because it's all I've ever known. 
for you, I'd say it's not what Christ has saved you out of, but what Christ has saved you from. Look at the world. Look at the brokenness of the world. See the depravity. See the sadness of the world and realize that if Christ hadn't stepped in and given you a mom and dad or a grandparent that loved Jesus, that that would be your life. Let us consider what God has saved us from. Let us consider what God has saved us out of and let that produce within us a humility. Because one thing arrogance has never done, arrogance has never created a convert to Christ. Arrogance in the life of a believer pushes people away and not draws them in. Jason's smiling at me. He's like, we're singing doxology today, not having time. Last, last thing. The other thing that it should produce in us of experiencing the gospel and remembering the gospel is it should produce within us a, a heart of thanksgiving. We should be people known for the praise and the gratitude that is on our lips. Why? Because we are remembering what we are brought out of. One of the reasons why believers' lives and their spiritual life is stunted is because they live a life of complaint and grumbling and not a life of gratitude. One of the reasons why anxiety seems to be like crawling in and creeping into every corner of our heart and mind is because we're not living a life of gratitude. One of the reasons why anger rises up within us so easily is because we're not living a life of gratitude. One of the reasons we're filled with jealousy is because we're not living a life of gratitude. Gratitude and thanksgiving is the lost spiritual discipline within our church that we have to get back. Look at what Paul says in this text. In verse 12, he gives thanks to Jesus for strengthening him. And then he talks about the mercy of God and then the grace of God in 14, the salvation of God in 15, the mercy of God again in verse 16. And then look at what happens in verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Doesn't that sound like a conclusion? It sounds like a conclusion to me. I say amen. It's all right. We're all done here. But why is this in chapter 1? It's in chapter 1 because Paul had just been thinking about the gospel and when we think about the gospel and consider the gospel, what it does is it leads us to praise. It's like praise just burst out of Paul because he was considering the gospel. People let us be known as people who are full of thanksgiving and gratitude. This is a discipline, something we have to train ourselves to do. So what are you going to do to train yourselves towards thanksgiving? Anyone have like rules for the car? Like, you're in my car, you don't touch the radio. I do the music. Or, we're in my car, you know, leave your Whataburger out, leave your Sonic out, because I don't want my car smelling like that, right? So you might have rules for your car. What if your rule for the car was like, all right, first question as we step in this car is, what are you thankful for? What if you, at the dinner table, the first thing you discussed was not the weekend or not how your day went? We all know everyone's going to say, it's all right. 
So what if the first thing you talk about at the dinner table is, what are you thankful for? How have you seen God active in your life today? What if you began to memorize these verses about Thanksgiving, like Philippians 4, 4 through 8, or Psalm 100? What if part of your daily devotionals, you're not just writing out and journaling your application for the day, but what if during your daily devotionals, you write out something from the text to give thanks to God for? And thanksgiving and gratitude just becomes a part of who you are and what you're doing. Christ Community Church, let us be a people who are formed by the gospel. Let's delight in it. Let's live it. And let us be that city on a hill that can't be hidden. Let's do this together. Let's stand and pray.